0: and welcome to Mountain Meister, it's the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. I'm your host, Ben Shank. My guest today is Chris McNamara. He's the founder of Outdoor Gear Lab and Tech Gear Lab. Outdoor Gear Lab is one of the most comprehensive and unbiased ratings and testing sites for outdoor gear. We'll talk to him about what makes that so successful. Chris is also the founder of Supertopo, which is a popular climbing forum. After my interview with Chris is our company spotlight segment with a beer called Sufferfest. I'll speak with the co-founder, Caitlin Landisberg, about why she chose to name something Sufferfest that people consume. Then Hannah Van Wetter and I will drink the beer and tell you what we think about it. Mountain Meister is supported by Health IQ. It's a company that uses data and science to help health conscious people like climbers, runners, and cyclists get better rates on life insurance. Similar to how you can get a better rate on your car insurance by being a good driver, you can get better rates on your life insurance by being a good liver. To see if you qualify, get your free quote today at healthiq.com slash Meister. That's healthiq.com slash M-E-I-S-T-E-R. And thanks. Now time for my interview with Chris McNamara. I originally recorded this back in January of 2017, but for some reason never got around to releasing it until now. It seems especially appropriate considering we have launched these company spotlight segments, which occur after the standard Mountain Meister interview. Uh, We review products on these segments, so how good is it to be able to talk to the expert? Chris McNamara. Let's start off with outdoor and tech gear labs. I should say that my dream job used to be to be a product tester for Consumer Reports. Uh, So you essentially have my dream job. Tell me what it's like. Yeah, well, um,
1: it kind of all started from just passion for climbing gear and testing that as much as possible to try to create the best climbing reviews out there. And uh, we were just kind of surprised how it took off. So we started running with it into the outdoor world getting into backpacking, getting into hiking. And then we said, well, if this is working, let's take it all the way to Tech Gear Lab from, you know, food processors to drones. And so we've set up, you know, basically 30 people around the country just testing products nonstop, trying to create that perfect review that helps you find the perfect product for for each activity.
0: Now, it it seems like there is some uh, Consumer Reports influence in the way that you Uh, test gear is that true? Big time
1: yeah so I mean the the testing world used to be kind of divided in two things one was subscription and that was consumer reports where the way they were able to do such objective unbiased stuff was um, not taking free gear and they needed to charge a subscription and then the other form was um, you know the more common magazine newspaper etc gear reviews where um, they got free gear from the people who are also advertising in their magazines or newspapers or websites. Um, and then about, I don't know, maybe five or 10 years ago with the invention of the affiliate model, it basically became this middle way where you didn't have to charge a subscription, but you could still be totally objective in the sense that you would never have to accept free gear. You wouldn't have to have a relationship with the company whose gear you were testing. And so it's um, let us kind of just be as objective as we feel you need to be to kind of create those um, super helpful, useful reviews that are unbiased.
0: So at Outdoor and Tech Gear Labs, you choose to buy the gear, you remain unbiased as possible, and you're also having the same experience that the consumer does in buying the gear. So where do you get it?
1: I mean, we basically buy it um, off all the popular sites, and if we can't find it on REI or Backcountry or Amazon, we often, you know, buy it from the manufacturer. Um, it, for us, it's such a more important thing to get all the gear at once than to try to optimize the costs. Uh-huh. So we just we just want to do the selection of all the products we're going to review. Order them all at once, get them all the tester instantly, which is another reason why we just love buying the gear ourselves. Is um, that process can sometimes take five minutes, whereas to talk to ten different companies to get all the gear at once,
0: mm-hmm. you know, might take ten days. You know, but but you definitely could request these items from companies and get them for free, right? I mean, you have a the site is big enough and well established enough where you could save a lot of money doing it that way.
1: Oh, yeah. And, and when we were starting out at the very beginning, we, you know, accepted gear. We were happy when companies called us. And then and then it just switched. So now it's um, most companies, if they're not familiar with us, are trying to uh, pitch us products. And then we get pitched products. I don't know, probably 10 a day from a lot of really small companies. Um, I guess I'm probably one of the few people in the world who just realizes how many different small companies have popped up recently with the you know advent of kickstarter yeah. uh, the advent of being able to manufacture prototypes really easily so that you can have a product in hand and then just kind of need the great review or need the great marketing to to build a company around it so um, we do a lot of filtering of of that and we get to see we get to see a lot of cool products out there
0: what what goes into your uh, like your testing philosophy how 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 do you test products I guess
1: well the whole testing philosophy is if you're going to spend your hard-earned money you want to find the best product for your application and so it's understanding who the users are and understanding that there's a lot of varied users and that's why we have often three to six awards because there isn't kind of one product best for everyone. Often there's the best overall, often there's a best value, but then there'll be kind of a top pick for a specific application. So it's figuring out what in the end that decision is, what that person is going to be best, best served by. And then looking back, looking at all the other top reviews, looking at our own kind of past experience and trying to invent those tests Both kind of real world and in more of a lab setting that will really net out the differences between those products and really help someone find what is the best one for them.
0: How do you test out durability though? Because like new products get released all the time, or updates to products. And go ahead. Yeah,
1: I was going to say that is the hardest thing to test, especially because if you know one product fails, it could just be you got that one in a thousand that uh, had a defect. Um, Consumer Reports handles that issue by, they basically rate durability on large surveys to their members. Um, We haven't done that. So what we do is we don't rate durability very highly in our overall score. We mainly look for issues in our testing and then look through the, if if we come across an issue, say a rain boot keeps leaking, um, we'll then go and scour the internet for user reviews to see if it confirms that. And if it confirms that is an issue, then we, you know, we report what we found and we report what else is out there and kind of, you know, leave it at that. But, um, you know, to, to scientifically test durability, we'd probably have to order 20 of each product and use those, 20 you know across 10 products now you have 200 products you'd have to use 200 products like the exact same way to really over you know 200 hours and and that's just kind of beyond the scope of what we can do today
0: so you just essentially named the reason why being a product tester for consumer reports used to be my dream job and is no longer my dream job is because i hate having so much stuff and like when you review this gear you probably Gather so much stuff so what do you do with all of it
1: um well we give a lot of it to kind of community organizations um so so we're in tahoe so we um give it away to help fund building new trails Mm -hmm. Uh, we sell a lot a lot of it on ebay and then we hold on to most of the award winners so that we can um, test them against new products that come out
0: oh interesting are, the, are the, Is there a product 10 years old that is still better than some of the products that are being tested today? Uh, I mean,
1: for example, the North Face Basecamp duffel has gone through a couple iterations, but it's still at the top. And I think that's been around for maybe 15 or even 20 years. Wow! Um, there, there are a few products that have held up over a long period of time. And that is actually another reason why we don't accept um, free products from manufacturers is often they only want to give you their, their new product. And really what we're interested in is just the best product, and sometimes that's the newest product, but often it isn't. Often it's uh, it's more of a time-tested design that ends up being um, what people would be best served by.
0: And then uh, with Outdoor Tech Lab, I, I see these things that you review, and I wonder do you, does your house have all the best appliances? Do you have everything that's that's great in your house?
1: You, you know, it's actually kind of a, uh, you know, shoemaker's son uh, dilemma where we end up with all these products and often because we want to kind of get some money back, if we're not giving the product away, the, the ones with the highest eBay resale value are the best ones often. <laughs> And so, I end up with all the stuff that no one actually wants to buy. And so...
0: um, So, you have all the worst in your house. (laughs) Ironically, that's often what happens. (laughs) Um, Let's briefly just talk about uh, Supertopo, which uh, is one of probably the most visited sites by climbers, I'd imagine. Uh, I don't visit it that much because I don't climb. So, I'm going to refer to your uh, your interview with Chris Kalous from the Enormo cast. You guys talked uh, about the beginnings of SuperTobo, some interesting stuff there. Uh, I do however, love looking at comment forums. It's my guilty pleasure. And, uh, so I was hoping that you could maybe give me some of your favorite or least favorite, uh, threads that you have found in SuperTobo.
1: Yeah. Well, so SuperTopo is kind of, you know, where outdoor gear lab and tech gear lab came from. Um, I dropped out of college so many times that it didn't look like I was going to graduate and that I wasn't going to ever be qualified for a real job. So I decided I'd take my passion for climbing El Cap and create a guidebook company around it. And it just happened to be lucky that um, I was good friends with Galen Rowell who kind of invented the adventure photographer uh, job. And he invited a friend along who had just sold his tech company to Adobe and was like, you should take this guidebook idea, Supertopo, and create an internet presence. Um, we were a little early, but from all of that came the Supertopo forum, which is bas- basically was for a while the most um, trafficked kind of uh, climbing forum. And I don't know if it still is, uh, but it's definitely still the most kind of wild, wild west climbing forum because there's really not much money in it for us. And so we've decided uh, we're going to be unique and just not have as much stringent moderation as other sources and just kind of let it run wild. And a lot of times we get just some of the best stuff, like someone will find someone's wedding ring that they dropped from LCAP 15 years ago and we'll use the forum to make the connection on how to kind of reunite it with the owner. Um, And then on the other side, you get um, just the most nasty political rants I've ever seen on the Internet or on my climbing forum. And it's this constant struggle for us to try to create this very unique forum. And, And part of what's unique about it is it's really just one room. Um, we didn't split it into 27 different things for new climbers and let's just talk about gear, let's just talk about routes. It's kind of, kind of anything goes in, in one forum. and there's the, the pros and the cons of that are you get everything is like you know, the best part about it. You, you're kind of exposed to all these different things from climbing stories to people showing their latest uh, way they're kind of pimping out their van to live in. And then you also get these political rants, and it's all kind of in one giant soup bowl.
0: Coming up, I'll talk with Chris about his stint in wingsuit base jumping.
1: There were 60 of us, and if I look at that roster today, I think maybe a quarter of them died, and then probably another half of them quit.
0: Maltemeister is supported by Health IQ. Some metrics that life insurance companies use to measure the health of an individual may be dated or even inaccurate. For example, someone who is perfectly healthy may actually have a high BMI because of their muscle mass. An insurer would typically view this as a bad sign, but Health IQ will work with the insurance carrier to replace BMI with maybe a more accurate measurement such as waist to hip ratio or a cholesterol calculation. This underwriting advantage is how health IQ saves you money. See if you qualify today. Go to health IQ.com slash Meister.
1: What got me so excited about base jumping other than it is probably the coolest sport ever is um, I grew up a Yosemite climber who loves history. And I put a lot of that in the books I wrote and I, you, you, You just realize that the golden age of Yosemite climbing was in 1960, 1970. That's when all the really fast progression happened and there will always be progression after, but it'll never happen at that speed or have that much impact. Suddenly, base jumping came along and especially the wingsuit. And I realized, oh, this is not only an amazing sport, but this is the golden age of the sport where the Progression in the technology in the skill and the number of firsts will probably never be greater than
0: Hmm.
1: we'll just call it like you know 2005 to probably five years forward 2005 to 2020 um and it just so happened that I got that opportunity to kind of be right in the middle of it
0: I read somewhere you sewed together a wingsuit uh to a Walmart sweatsuit is that true
1: yeah. So, um, you know, base jumping that was basically been around forever, but the, the start of it's often pointed early eighties off El Cap and, um, the wingsuit, the first commercially available one wasn't, people have been attempting wingsuits for a hundred years. There's actually a couple cool books on what, what a wingsuit looked like in 1910. Often people didn't live yeah. even less than today, but, um, the first commercially available one was, you know, kind of early two thousands. And so I was there within maybe three years of being able to, you know, buy one. And that really marks in my mind when, when a sport starts is when everyone has access to the gear. Um, it's no longer just one guy in his, in his, uh, shed tinkering. Um, and so as soon as they were available, they all the best cliffs at the time, that are legal were in Europe so that's where all the best wingsuit jumpers were and I was one of the first people luckily to be able to go to Europe uh, fly with a lot of those guys and then take the skills um, back to the US and and just basically look at Yosemite the way a lot of people did in 1960 where suddenly, oh wow! There's just all these things that have never been done, um, and across you know the entire United States, and then, and then a few jumps in uh, Baffin Island, which is northeastern Canada, and probably the big wall capital of the world.
0: Did did you like you, you liked base jumping, right?
1: Yeah, no, I mean it's I think by far the coolest thing I will ever do have ever done. It's uh, it's flying. You know, it's it's really hard to think of something cooler than human flight where you're flying your body and you're not flying uh, a contraption like a glider or a hang glider or a paraglider.
0: huh. But you started to see more accidents. And is that, is that what made you want to stop?
1: Yeah. I mean, it was really two things intersecting. One was it became less and less fun. Like, you know, like anything, if you do it enough and can't find it enough new challenge or variety in it, it starts to become kind of mundane. Um, and had it been the risk level of mountain biking, I would have gladly kept doing it because it's a great way to be outdoors and with your friends and, but it doesn't have the risk level of mountain biking. It has, I don't think there's anything else that compares to how dangerous it is. I mean, um, I did this event in I think 2006 in Kuala Lumpur where there were 60 of us and if I look at that roster today, I think maybe a quarter of them died and then probably another half of them quit. Mm-hmm. So out of that like 60 over 10 years, you know, quarter die and only a quarter are probably still actively doing it. So, um, I can't think of any other sport that is even remotely that
0: dangerous. So you said you couldn't find enough challenge in this sport. Like how, how does one raise the challenge level in base jumping?
1: Base jumping, it's all about, uh, so, and we're, we're really, I think, talking about wingsuit base jumping. Okay. Um, yes. and, and a lot of people always like kind of, you know, ask the difference. You know, base jumping is just jumping off usually a cliff, but it could be an antenna, it could be a bridge, you know, with a parachute. And then a wingsuit is a form of base jumping. You're just now adding a, a wingsuit into the equation. Um, and the, the challenge is the mastering the different suits and the more surface area you have, the more, you know, potential you have to fly at a greater glide ratio and that then unlocks even more, um, cliffs. So one is learning how to fly these big suits and then the other one is then, understanding your limits of like what's the shortest cliff you can jump off to get the thing started mm-hmm. that's a, that's a big question you know some people have jumped off 200 foot cliffs where which is insane to me mm-hmm. you know, I think the shortest one I ever jumped off was maybe 600 and a, you know a safe one would be 1200 and then after you jump off that cliff and the, the wingsuits flying, it now actually becomes like skiing where you're choosing a line. You're going, uh-huh. well, last time I went down this gully and then I banked around that corner. Um, and, and wing seating becomes the same thing where um, each line has different challenges and it comes. it's up to you to know your limits, know how much margin to leave, and then to be able to fly all those different lines. And that's really fun for a while, but then you realize that... Um, if you're, if you don't always keep this giant margin, um, it just takes a half a second or a quarter second and it's all over. And that's what I think makes the sport so dangerous is you only have to mess up for a quarter second. And on every single jump, you have to hold a giant margin. And it's really hard, I think for humans, especially humans who are getting involved with base jumping to take that perspective. I know it was really hard for me and that's Part of the reason I knew I I quit was I knew there was just only so long I'd be able to, you know, play, you know, roll the dice. Mm -hmm.
0: So is that, uh, we hear a lot like the, uh, you never thought that this person would go. He was, he was the best. Is that why the best are dying? Because they're pushing it the further, their, their challenge level is so high. And because there's this relationship between challenge and danger, not so with other sports like climbing, if you're roped in right if you're pushing it the hardest you're most likely to die
1: yeah i mean i think the best analogy for me was um big wave surfing which i never got into true big wave but i got into we'll call it medium wave surfing and um, you know like 20 foot faces where um it's terrifying and you always are getting constant feedback on if you should really be out there and then you get held down by a wave and And there's just, you're getting all this feedback that's constantly putting in front of you, like, should you be here? Are you out of your um, safety zone? Um, And then, so I I think of big wave surfing as a terrifying sport that is usually pretty safe because you usually self um, kind of moderate yourself from taking insane risks. Like people don't just accidentally paddle out into Mavericks or Jaws, whereas base jumping is the opposite anyone who can physically take one step can jump off any of these cliffs Hmm. and um and at of course at first no one does they're they're safe and they, they try to give themselves a big margin but then they just have to hold that margin over jump after jump and doing it for 50 jumps not a big deal but once you get into 200 or 400 jumps you know keeping that level of you know, margin of like, okay, I know I can do this, but I'm going to back off 20% so that that kind of one in a hundred event, when it does happen, I'll still be ready for it. I think that's what's just really hard to do. And that's why some of the best base jumpers in the world who are really careful and safe, it just takes one jump where they don't leave that big margin and that's it.
0: We'll talk to Chris about what he's up to today in just a bit. But first, we have some exciting plans this summer with Big City Mountaineers and their Summit for Someone program. I've reported on these trips in the past, you may have heard them, Uh, Grand Teton this past year, Mount Hood, Mount Langley. This year, we'll be promoting their Corporate Challenges program where a company like yours can host a trip of its own. I think it'd be a really cool story about team building and corporate social responsibility. You can also get your voice featured on the podcast and your company will get some really good PR out of the whole thing being on Mountain Meister. This year we'll be going to Long's Peak, that's in Colorado from September 7th through 9th. Everyone who signs up gets a 70 liter backpacking pack, a set of Mountain Smith trekking poles and a BCM commemorative t-shirt. If your company is interested, or if you are, shoot me an email, ben at mtnmeister.com. Would love to hear from you. Okay, now back to my interview with Chris. So uh, let's move on to South Lake Tahoe. You're part of a movement to make this uh, one of the best mountain towns in the States. Yeah, I mean,
1: basically I came to South Lake in 2000, and said this place is beautiful. I came here to climb, I came here to snowboard, but the community is just not up to par with all these places in Europe where I was going to base jump or all these great towns in Colorado or Montana. And uh and that's just gonna be the way it is. And I'm just gonna visit this place, but I'm never gonna live here. And um about two or three years ago I just Started reading enough and seeing enough examples of people who were trying to make kind of urban change, that it made me realize, you know, we have the the, the truly hard resource, which is geography, having a beautiful, amazing place. That's the thing that you can't recreate. These things like urban infrastructure and businesses and uh, recreation opportunities, while not easy, they're doable, and people have done them, and so. As long as we don't set some goal like in a one- to two-year range but set it in maybe a 10- to 20-year range, I don't see why we couldn't um, turn this around and take a place that has the amazing geography and bring in the amazing businesses, you know, urban layout, and recreation opportunities.
0: There are probably some people who don't want you to do that, though, right?
1: I mean, there's always someone. Uh, I, I think the main question is, what do you know what is the majority what are the the majority of residents who live here want and from the ones I hang out with um anyone who's under the age of say 50 I'd say 100% of them are in agreement with (laughs) it would be so great to be able to have a a diverse economy with jobs that aren't just being a lifty Um, and more great trails. I mean, I think the only resistance we'll probably run into is, um, people who are older, who are like, I don't do any of that stuff. I don't want anyone new here. And I want to keep my taxes as low as possible, uh-huh. you know, Yet the, you know, in South Lake, for example, we have probably 20 motels that are almost abandoned and they're, um, and because there's a housing shortage, people are just kind of living in gnarly hotel rooms and, you know, their kitchen is a hot plate, you know. Oh my god! You know what? What if we took those hot- gnarly hotels and turned them into great um, housing, and on the bottom below it, there there were kind of cool, innovative businesses, um, you know, that type of thing. Versus, why are,
0: why are there twenty hotels there or motels?
1: Uh, I mean, it's it's a long story, but basically, South Lake, they just after the Olympics in the sixties, they just. Mm-hmm open the floodgates to development. They did as much as they wanted. They built a mini Florida keys by, you know, tearing up marshland. They went crazy and built all this stuff. And then for good reasons, they said, we don't want that to be the vision. And they basically stopped all development for 30 years or 40 years. So now we have basically all this development that no one will touch. And they're just trying to figure out like, okay, we don't want to create another Florida Keys yeah. in Lake Tahoe. We don't want to, you know, dig up the, the, the jewel of the Sierra, but we also don't want to have, um, all this stuff, uh, that was built in the sixties be untouchable and just kind of slowly rot away. How do we, um, come up with a vision for what a truly great mountain community would be and start, uh, redeveloping those properties to fit that vision.
0: That's neat. So when do people start Coming in, you know, like you, you want to get people there, uh, but people don't want to come until it's good enough. So, like, when when is that point? I
1: mean, my whole thing is I got inspired by certain examples of other people, so I'm just trying to create uh, my own example of, of of how it's working for me. I'm working with Corey Rich down the street, who's creating, you know, a, his own little production company, um, and we're just going to create our examples and kind of just tell our stories of how we got there, what worked, what didn't work, and then put that out there. And um, the hope is that other people who are sitting in the Bay area going like, wow, I just paid a million dollars for a one bedroom condo and I spent two hours a day in traffic. Like wouldn't it be better to spend half or a third of that and uh, snowboard before work Uh, and be a part of an area that's, has a lot of energy and is changing versus an area that's, you know, a lot more kind of static. So that's our hope. We're all kind of totally side hustle, hack developers. We're not even developers. We're just, um, we're just saying what gets us so excited to be here is, is bringing more cool businesses and people here. And we just hope that our kind of example will, will do that.
0: I like that. That was a good pitch. It certainly (laughs) seems like it it would make sense to move there. When when are you you moving? Maybe you'll find Mountain Meister there in the future, South Lake. Okay, one more question uh, for you, Chris. That's who would you like to hear next on the show?
1: I think two people. One is Corey Rich, who I mentioned earlier, just because um, such a passionate person who's also, um, you know, just kind of invented the ultimate adventure lifestyle through his work becomes his play, becomes his work. And then, um, you know, a hero of mine who's Tom Frost, who they're doing a documentary about him this year to recognize just kind of what an extraordinary life he had. And he was in Yosemite as part of that golden age doing those first ascents on LCAP and then took that passion to create, uh, you know, amazing movies and a film career and then further to kind of develop some of the most incredible lighting uh, technology which is still used in the um, commercial uh, world today and so just that whole ability to take a passion for outdoor and adventure and then turn that into a lifestyle and a profession is kind of you know the the roadmap i'm trying to follow
0: keep an ear out for corey rich and tom frost on a future episode of mountain meister chris mcnamara founder of outdoor gear lab tech gear lab super Tobo, thanks so much for joining us thank you that was great we'll have links to super Tobo, outdoor gear lab and tech gear lab on our website and of course in the show notes of today's episode the next part of our show is called the company spotlight segment in our company spotlights we feature lesser known outdoor brands in short interviews then we try out their product and tell you what we think now companies are not allowed to pay to be on the segment but they do have to give us the product for free today we welcome suffer fest beer company caitlin landisberg the ceo and founder of suffer fest beer company why would one name something suffer fest that you're supposed to consume
2: <laughs> that's so that's it's a great question um Sufferfest is a, for me, has always been a term of endearment. I've been an avid long distance trail runner for the last decade or so, and that's where I stumbled upon that term for the first time uh, many, many years ago. When we described an epically painful day out on a race course, Um, you know, someone described it as the most epic sufferfest they had ever had, and that was the perfect term.
0: You have me sold. Um, I have uh, the IPA in my hand. I got home to it and uh, stuck it in the fridge. It's been sitting there for about three hours in the fridge, and then I just went on a long run so I could really, uh, really enjoy this. And I realized on my long run as I was craving this beer that you've really positioned yourself perfectly. And while you talk, I'm actually I'm going to open my beer and uh, okay. pour a little bit and st- uh, go ahead. Yeah.
2: Thanks. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the only time where I really craved a beer, where that's the one thing that I want, is after a race or a mm-hmm. track workout or something that's just arduous and painful. It's my little. It is my trophy. It's my prize at the end of a hard day. And so, um, that's that's really you know why um, when I needed to think about my my diet and my consumption as an athlete, I decided to. to figure out what I could drink that made me feel really great made me celebrate made me feel like I was part of a pack but also did something a little bit better for me so that's why we started making functional beer
0: okay so I have tried it and your beer is terrific I'm I'm very impressed
2: thank you our taper IPA it's, um, it's our 7.5% West Coast style IPA. Mm-hmm. Every beer that I've made um, has a story. It's all been very self-referential, for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. I went through a lot of IT band issues as an avid runner. And the taper really represents the time where I actually had to just sit on my hands and know that yeah. sitting on a roller and having rest days was part of the training. And I wanted a great beer that I could sip and enjoy and maybe have another one. So for me, it drinks like a session. It's not too overly bitter. I don't feel like I'm choking down a cigar and have that lingering bitterness. Um, but it does remind me of sort of my my ideal setting for a long run, which is the Muir Woods here in, in Northern California. It's it's dark. It's dank. It's got that resin and pine, um, but then you get to pass some of those flower blossoms here and there, um, and so it evokes a lot of um, wonderful memories and emotion for me. But um, it, I think that it's it's one of our it's one of our top sellers at, at retail and in our chain accounts, and um, I'm really proud of it. So,
0: a um, couple questions. One I see yeah. at the bottom, crafted to remove gluten.
2: So we batch test all of our beers um, in every batch that we make Mm -hmm. um, in the most sensitive testing um, analysis that we have at our access. And um, all of our beers are tested at under five parts per million um, levels of gluten, which is non-detectable. Okay,
0: so it's basically gluten-free.
2: It's, yes. And we don't use the term gluten-free because this was, beer was made with barley. Um, It was once made with, a, a gluten um, <laughs> a gluten full um, ingredient, um, but because we've used an, an enzyme um, to eat away at the gluten, rendering it gluten free essentially, um, we believe, and I certainly believe from an academics perspective that uh, this beer is more gluten- free than something that's actually labeled gluten free. Yeah,
0: um, yeah, yeah there's also a a Pilsner and a blonde ale, correct?
2: Yes, we have a fly-by uh, fly Pilsner, which I made for my wedding, and the blonde um, uh, shakeout, which I made after I had my first child. She's one now, and this was the beer to get me out of my postpartum rut and into my next training phase. So they again, they all are coming from different places in my life um, that um, I desired a certain type of, of flavor and profile in, in my beer. Yeah.
0: Uh, we'll be trying those two during the official review with Hannah. Uh, three beers out now, the IPA, the Blonde Ale, and the Pilsner. And you have two more coming?
2: Yeah, we have two more. I call them super beers coming out. I'm so excited. I've been working about, on them for some time now. But uh, our FKT, Fastest Known Time um, Pale Ale, first of its kind, electrolytic and nutritive beer. So. Um, this is with added electrolytes, there's more salt than, um, or just as much salt, I would say, than, um, your average energy drink, um, that you get as a replenishment, um, ingredient along with blackcurrant superfood. Blackcurrant has four times the amount of vitamin C as a blueberry, and we can pack a really great immunity boosting punch, which is sort of right when you need it most after a race or a hard effort. And then we have the repeat Kolsch, which is also enhanced by Bee Pollen Superfood, which is this wonderful, wonder food that packs a really nice amount of, of protein and replenishment and antioxidants. I actually even use bee pollen on my face. Um, I love it and it gives this great sweet aroma without impacting the sugar or fermentation so we can get low-cal, low-carb, and low ABV for those who just want to bounce back but have a good beer.
0: Okay, so where do people buy this?
2: Uh, so we operate and sell our beer in California and Colorado currently. Um, but if you're out of state and because we do so many events with runners, cyclists, mountaineers, climbers, surfers, skiers, um, we we love to to serve our athletes um, at the point of inspiration. So folks sometimes try us and then they have to fly home and they don't know where to get us. And so we have Craft City online, which you can find on our website. And they ship direct to your door, um, um, in 34 states. So ideally, and hopefully most states are covered who want to check us out. Um, but we are in, um, retailers up and down California and now in Colorado.
0: Oh, uh, what if, so let's say one of our listeners, uh, maybe volunteers for a race or something along those Mm -hmm. lines, could they potentially get in touch with you and, uh, like buy in bulk? for their race
2: yeah I think um with the right licenses we can certainly help them out for sure
0: okay maybe uh, yeah just an idea that I had now um, yeah I love I, that if people are interested they can email me and then I'll connect them with you perfect uh Caitlin thanks so much for talking to us and uh for sending me some beer to try I'm excited Thank for the you. official review with Hannah
2: yeah likewise I appreciate it thanks for your time
0: You can get 20% off of Sufferfest's online store. Not the beer, but some cool glasses, hats, and t-shirts. Use the code MEISTER at checkout. We'll also have the link on our website where you can go buy the beer. Now, here's what Hannah Van Wetter and I thought of Sufferfest. Why? Well, I thought that I had IPAs in my fridge, which I did over the weekend, and now they're gone. So you drank them? I either drank them or somebody else did. I thought I I had one more left. I mean, I have the Sufferfest one, but uh, I thought that I had like another one to compare it to, side by side.
3: Oh, a different IPA. Yeah,
0: a different IPA.
3: So you want to drink three beers right now?
0: Well, that's the problem. Is that I was gonna say like I don't really like things to go to waste, as you know. So
3: really, you don't like things to go to waste.
0: So I was gonna like open these three beers and then like be forced to drink all of them while i edit a podcast and so i
3: think we'll be all right well first ben let me uh let me open this one so we can okay. really get the true taste test going okay so this is the uh suffer it's called the shakeout it's a blonde i haven't had this one yet
0: did you do anything before this did you go running or anything
3: no not today um
0: don't you have a half but, marathon coming up
3: yeah i do uh huh. Yep. Okay. I'm on a strict training regimen to to keep my on the couch, off the couch training. Oh, going I see. Break so, that.
0: so not training at all. Not training. Exactly. Okay. All right.
3: But I have been doing a lot of mountain biking because it's more fun than running. Okay. And when we actually, it was great timing when we got our um, delivery of the Sufferfest, we were planning on going biking with about six of our friends after work. So we Met up with them at around five thirty and did this really fun but totally grueling ride. It was like a seven mile ride, so not very long, and the the start of it was just about two thousand feet of pure climbing um, up like a basically a gravel road uh, in about two and a half miles. so really steep, pretty relentless. And we had told our friends that we had all this awesome beer that we wanted to try. And so it was definitely what got us all up the hill was the promise of these nice beers waiting for us back in the car. Anyway, we finished the ride and it was sweet. The downhill was super fun and fast and then got back to the parking lot and everyone was able to try the beers. Um, We had one person in our group that was gluten-free. So he really liked that um, Sufferfest had no gluten in it because otherwise, usually in that case, he um, can't partake like everyone else. Um, But yeah, I mean, it was a perfect, like, being with a group of friends and having that true, like after work, you know, earning some sort of exercise, be it yeah. running or biking or, you know, what have you, um, and being able to, you know, crack a beer in the parking lot and really enjoy it. So
0: the question is like, why do you need this beer to do that? Right? Like if, if you can get your brain in the mode of just like returning to beers and they don't have to be suffer fest beers, it's going to be the same effect and potentially a better beer uh cost wise let's see how much these cost these are pints so i guess you get uh a pint which is kind of fun uh versus a 12 ounce can Yep. i'm drinking the ipa right now which i think is really good i like it i, I know mean, it's really good again it's not like the best beer i've ever had uh but it's like a solid ipa
3: i think the beer that you're drinking right now is the best beer you've ever had just well, in general
0: no matter what you're drinking an outlook so they come uh 239 per 16 ounce can
3: that's like how much beers cost in the supermarket or liquor stores i don't know if you pick up a six pack of a nice craft lager or an ipa or something it's about 10 to 12 dollars for a six pack yeah
0: yeah fair okay okay so when i first drank this i again like was doing a lot of exercise i just finished like a long run And first thing I drank was a beer, and then had to like I got back fifteen minutes before I recorded, Uh, and so I was just like drinking the beer while we were recording, and I was like, "This is phenomenal." But you've positioned yourself really, really well in that any time somebody's drinking your beer, it's maybe well, it's probably going to be like after they just worked out and they're really thirsty and in the mood for a beer. So I was wondering like how this would fare. When I'm not really thirsty, or after I haven't worked out, which is right now, okay, and I still, and I still feel the same way. I think it's a, a solid beer.
3: Yeah, I think I think it's uh Would you buy it with your rank? own money? I think so. Here's something I spend my own money on. Right. What about you? Do you think you would buy it with your own money? Uh
0: No, because well, actually, if I was if I if I was with friends. I would buy, I think there's a lot to this Sufferfest brand. I think if you pull these out, like for your friends, like exactly your scenario, if you pull these out for your friends after a mountain bike ride, I think the atmosphere is going to be a little bit more fun than if you just pull out some other beers. Right. Uh, it's like kind of a new thing, but I'm not going to bring these beers when, uh, it's the same price for, I think a touch better of a beer.
3: Yeah. I think it adds a good uh, a good conversation point. Yeah, it's fun exactly. to like have something that is particularly suited to a certain sort of activity, you yeah. know, when we run the when you run the marathon and I run the half marathon. Yeah. Probably finish it about the same time. <laughs> Not true. So, <laughs> <laughs> I would like think that these would be good beers to drink after. So,
0: I would recommend if you have an upcoming adventure, or, or maybe like a, uh, a one-day adventure and you can leave a cooler in your car at the end of the day and you're doing it with friends. I would say order some Sufferfest beer online and then you can uh, use it in its appropriate situation. Totally. Again, that's Sufferfestbeer.com. We'll have links on our website and in the show notes of this episode. That's all for today's episode of Mountain Meister. Thanks again for listening. If you or your company is interested in joining Mountain Meister for our Summit for Someone Climb of Long's Peak, the September 7th through 9th, please let me know. My email is ben at mtnmeister.com. I had just an absolute blast on the Grand Teton trip. I hope you can join me this time around. As usual, Enjoy doing the rest of whatever you do when you listen to the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. Till next time, I'm your host, Ben Shank. Thanks for listening to Mountain Meister.